So today we're diving back into Colossians, Colossians 2.16. We're going to get through the second chapter today, uh, which for you, some of you guys are like, that's a miracle uh, that it's taken us this long. Um, but the second half of this book, the second two chapters will go quicker uh, by my estimation. And that's mainly because Paul is shifting now from uh, unpacking massive theological truths to now dealing with, he's getting really practical in dealing with how do we respond to these truths? How does the Colossian church 2,000 years ago respond to the things he said about Jesus, the things that he said about the body of believers that, that are in Colossae? And um, even before I read the text, I just need to set the table a little bit before this specific passage because I've mentioned this before and it's just, it really is helpful for us to understand why this letter was written. Um, this letter was written because a teaching had cropped up in the Colossian church, and this teaching um, was problematic. The person who planted the church in Colossae, Epaphras, was so uh, bothered by what was going on with this teaching that he goes all the way to Paul, who, uh, who was imprisoned at the time, and he asked Paul to write this letter and to communicate the truth of the gospel to these people in Colossae. And the teaching, effectively, is this idea that the gospel in and of itself is insufficient to make you a full and complete Christian. That Christ's work of redemption on the cross is not sufficient to do that. And you need regulations, you need practices, you need these things added in order for your Christian experience to be full. In order for you specifically in this week to be free from indwelling sin, sin that is still in your heart, and you'll see that today. Um, this new teaching is effectively saying that Jesus is not enough. And if there's one thing that Paul's made crystal clear in this letter so far is that Jesus is certainly more than enough. He is infinitely sufficient and infinitely supreme in every single way. In every verse that we've read, it's either implied or it's outright stated. Um, and so even um, from just a few verses prior to the passage we're reading today, if you guys remember a few weeks back, Paul's lifting up this idea that Christ is superior. He says that what Jesus accomplished in human history was amazing. The cross was incredible. Um, and every person who trusts in him and in the sacrifice that he made on that cross transforms their life. He says in chapter 2, verse 13 through 15 this, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Christ and so Paul says here, that record of debt that dominated our lives, all of the sin that we had ever committed, has been completely and totally canceled in the cross. It's been blotted out by his work on that tree. And not only that, the very accusers, these rulers and authorities, which we'll be talking about more today, who would hold those debts against God's people as accusations, they have been put to open shame. They have been triumphed over. And our text today right now, as we get into it, is Paul's next step in his argument against this new teaching. It's a polemic argument that he's making. He's not playing games. So listen to what he says to the Colossian believers 
as they are confronted with this new teaching. This is what he says, verse 16. Therefore, given everything I just said, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come. <laughs> we tried propping up into the door with a water bottle. <laughs> yeah, we had a few seconds. So these are a shadow. The water bottle is a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. He says, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished in it together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. So this is Paul's first salvo against this new teaching. It's his first, effectively his first assault in this letter against that. And it may sound complicated, it may sound confusing, but it's actually quite simple. What the Colossians and Paul know, the reader doesn't know at this point, won't discover till verse 23, is that in this new teaching, they're saying that there's a system, a grid you can live on that will eradicate your sin, your desire to dishonor God, your desire to be selfish and hurt other people or, or get stuff for yourself at other people's expense. There's a system or grid, this new teaching would say, that eradicates sin. It ends sin. It ends the indulgence of the flesh. And the Colossians, like all new Christians who've come to trust Jesus and receive his forgiveness, have discovered that they still have sin inside their hearts. And theologians refer to this as indwelling sin. Paul's going to call it, like I said, the indulgence of the flesh. So let's ask a question. What is sin? What is sin? What does it mean to sin? We've talked about this before. Sin is obviously doing something that is morally wrong. But even saying that isn't quite as consistent with saying at the very foundation of what sin is, it is loving something more than God. It is delighting in something more than the joy of being in obedience to the one who loves you, the one who made you. And the Bible is really clear. The Bible tells us that we need to make war against sin. We need to fight sin that's in us. And Christians, believe it or not, become, the moment they are redeemed by Christ, committed killers. Their job is to go out and kill sin in their own lives. This is how Scripture talks about our relationship with sin, which you'll see in the coming weeks. We are called to eradicate everything that dishonors God and hurts other peoples in our, in our own hearts. And the Colossian church is asking the same question. How do we stop sinning? I don't want to dishonor God anymore. How do I stop? And this new teaching is going to provide an answer. It says, there's a litany of solutions, actually. Here are a few of them. Verse 16 says, food and drink restrictions. Certain foods you don't eat. Certain drinks you don't have. They're restricted, which is effectively a form of asceticism, removing or abstaining something from your life, your, your diet. And so we also see... They've added in festivals, and so this idea that festivals and new moons and Sabbaths are included. So keeping certain days 
holy, this new teaching says, will help you remove sin. Even worship of angels was part of this teaching. So they would say, if you want to stop the indulgence of your flesh, your disposition to go after other things over God, you need to do these things. And if you're not doing them, you're not a real Christian. You're not experiencing the fullness of what it means to be a Christian. And Paul looks at that teaching and he says, no, that's not true. That is not true. You do not need these regulations to be a full Christian. None of that stuff, if you don't do it, can disqualify you. And that's why he begins with the therefore. He's connecting the previous verse's work of God's objective work in human history to redeem a people for himself with this reality that you don't need these regulations. Christ has done all of the work. And he's telling the Colossians, don't let anybody pass judgment on you. Don't let anybody disqualify you from being a Christian. God in Christ Jesus has accomplished everything that is necessary for you to experience the fullness of Christianity. And he did that, including killing sin. And he did that on the cross. It wasn't anything you could earn or contribute to in a meritorious way. And then in verse 17, if you're very vaguely familiar with the Old Testament, some of this stuff sounds familiar to you probably. You probably recognize some of these things because these regulations aren't coming out of left field. Some of them are actually in our Bibles. And so the Israelites were given certain kinds of food regulations, certain kinds of drink regulations in the Old Testament. They were given holy days and festivals and feasts. There were certain things that they were told to regard, given by God, while they were in the wilderness. And so there's an aspect of this teaching that is connected to certain Jewish regulations and laws, certain ceremonial laws. And so how does Paul, the Hebrew of Hebrews, according to Philippians 3, how does he respond to this? How does he, how does he deal with it and engage it? Well, the question we should ask is, what's wrong with these practices? If God would say, do them here and not do them here, what's wrong with them? Well, for one, Paul mentions right off the bat that those regulations were intended to be a shadow, always, even when they were commanded to be obeyed. They were always intended to be a shadow. Food and drink regulations that led to ceremonial purity and the keeping of feast and Sabbaths, all of that was a shadow of something greater. Verse 17 says it specifically like this. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so these regulations were obeyed and followed by the nation of Israel when they were originally given. But their greater purpose was always as a shadow pointing to something to come, pointing to a kingdom that was yet to be revealed, the substance of which, Paul says, belongs to one person, Christ Jesus. And so now that the Messiah has come, and now that he's inaugurated his kingdom through his work on the cross, these shadows no longer function as a necessity for God's people. They are not a necessity any, anymore. <laughs> um, they're not a pointer anymore because we are partakers, at least in part, in that substance. We are part of God's kingdom. Even though we don't see it in its fullness, even though it will come in the future in fullness, we are partakers of the substance right now. But that's not the only issue with these regulations. There's another issue that's even more problematic. Food regulations and feasts in the Old Testament 
were never, ever, ever intended as a means for people to make themselves holy before God. That was never the intention. God alone can make people holy. These traditions could not commend themselves, to, could not commend the people who participate in them to God. And if they're being used to that end, like the Colossian heresy is suggesting to do, they're not being used properly, which is why Jesus, if you remember in the Gospels, has such a tough time with the, the Pharisees, such, such a difficult time with these guys, because the Pharisees are saying, I do these things and God blesses me. They sought to commend themselves before God by meritorious actions, by doing things that would earn God's favor. And that's not the way God works because we could never earn anything from a being that is infinitely glorious, infinitely worthy of our praise, who we fail every day, every moment of every day. Yet that's what this new teaching was saying. But what's strange about this teaching isn't that it's strictly Jewish law, because Paul had to deal with that in other places in the New Testament. What's strange about this teaching is that he mentions things that are completely alien to the Old Testament, completely alien to our Bible, like asceticism, in the worship of angels, which most theologians connect to Greek philosophy, believe it or not, instead of Jewish tradition. And so there's a concern over Greek influence in this new teaching. It says in Colossians 2.9, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So Paul's already brought this up in this letter. He's already engaged this empty deceit, this philosophy that is not according to Christ. This isn't merely a a, a difference in understanding Jewish law. There are other factors at play. There's more than a proper approach to Jewish law as a Christian that's at place. There's a strong, strong pagan influence here, and we see that in the asceticism, which is distinctly Greek, and the denial of engaging in certain things. And so this teaching also had the worship of supernatural beings, the worship of angels, Um, And the source of this teaching, Paul says in this point in the letter, is someone who, according to verse 18, was going on about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So Paul is likely here targeting a specific person still embedded in the community who is still claiming, I had these visions, I know what we need to do, we got to do it this way, and then evangelizing aggressively that way. So Effective was his evangelism that Epaphras, like I said, left Colossae, goes all the way to where Paul is in prison and says, hey, we need to figure out something to do about this. We need to figure out something to do about this because it's getting out of hand. Um, and Paul looks at this teacher in this letter and says, you're, you're wrong. You are dead wrong. Reverting to Jewish ceremonial regulations or Greek asceticism cannot remove sin. It cannot prevent you from the indulgence of the flesh. And in fact, Paul says here that it is deadly to cling to shadows and philosophies. The reason why is this, because there's only one thing that can remove your sin. There's only one thing that can, that can cause you to not indulge in the flesh, and that is Christ Jesus alone which is what Paul has hammered on repeatedly every single week we've gotten together, is the absolute supremacy, the absolute sufficiency of Christ Jesus at every step of the Christian life. He's saying, don't turn to regulations, don't turn to traditions, don't turn to anything that people would say, this commends you to God, do it. 
turn to Christ. And if you were with us uh, a few months ago, we were in the Christ hymn, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, and there we read this line, this statement about Jesus. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the head of the body, the church. To Paul, Jesus' headship his unity over the people who have trusted him, over the church, the people who love him, is of utmost importance. It is central to the Christian experience. So the church isn't, and I think we can uh, be confused to think of it um, in the sort of modern era as this icing on the cake. We don't really need it. It's kind of like a thing that you just do. You have to do it. It's one of these things that you do. Um, we don't see it as essential, which is what Paul sees. It. It's not extra credit. It's not a nice to have. The church in Paul's mind is essential, and he's not talking about a building. He's not talking about a denomination. He is talking about a group of people who trust in Christ alone. Outside of the Trinity, there is, that when you think about the headship of Christ and the church, there is no more important relationship than Jesus Christ's relationship to the church and to the church's relationship to each other. I'm talking about people in this room today. Um, there's no other relationship that is more important than that. And I hope we get this because it's massive. If your faith is in Christ Jesus, we together in this room are so close, so tightly knit that in the mind of God when he looks at us, he sees one body. He sees one body. All of us in the church, spanning the entire planet, across human history, are one body, and Christ Jesus is the head of that body, which is why Paul can say in Colossians 2.19, if you cling to regulations, if you cling to these traditions in Greek asceticism, you are not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So what does this mean? Does it mean that Paul is just trying to be clever with analogies and saying, you know, the human body is a little bit like the church? No. It means that our physical bodies, which possess members and tissues and ligaments, things that we couldn't function without, our physical bodies ultimately exist for a higher purpose. The main reason our physical bodies exist isn't just for our life. The main reason our physical bodies exist is to point to Christ, is to point to who he is. The greater reality here isn't a person's physical anatomy, which will die and fade away. It's not that. The greater reality is the church that will never, ever, ever, ever die. We have physical bodies like we do because God wants us to understand how close you and I are together and how close we are to Jesus as part of his body. That's why we have physical bodies. We look at our bodies and the necessity of every piece of them and God says, that's a picture of the church. That's a picture of the church. That's how close you are connected to my son. That's how close you're connected to each other. And so Paul is telling them this so that they hold fast to the head. Rather than submit to regulations, rather than to submit to these philosophies and try to live on these superstitious grids, cling to Christ alone. Cling to Jesus alone and do it with all of your might as though he is the only source of life that you have. That's what he's telling these Christians. 
And let me tell you, like, this, is, this has got to be individually, this has got to be our posture with Jesus. He is the only source of life we have. We cling to him as if our life depended on it. And individually, this has to be the source. Uh, our, this has to be our posture with him. And corporately, collectively, this has to be our posture as a church, risen hope, to cling to Christ. Paul is pleading with the Colossians. He's saying, never let go of Jesus. Do not let go of Jesus because you will have to to grab these other things. You will have to, to let go of Christ. You cannot juggle both of them because Christ is exclusive. Nothing else can nourish you. Nothing else can cause you growth spiritually, can kill your sin. Only Jesus Christ. And it's important to note, Paul isn't just saying this because Jesus is better He's a better option among a variety of other options that have maybe less value, but they're still viable. He's not saying that at all. Paul is telling them to rely on these regulations and these philosophies means that as a means of securing your own righteousness and killing your own sin is actually a death sentence. It is a death sentence. It will ultimately kill you if you rely on these regulations for any measure of holiness. It's not just a futile effort that will fail you. These things are deadly. And we see that in the verses that follow. Look at Colossians 2.20. Paul says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So Paul's making it very clear here what's at stake. This new teaching may look good, it may be rational in your Greco-Jewish understanding of the world. It may seem to make logical sense to these people in first century Colossae. But they don't have any value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They will never, ever, ever stop you from sinning. And even more than that, they're dangerous. These regulations that the Colossians are in danger of submitting to are not simply the product of human teachers, they're not simply sourced out of traditions that have been passed along through generations. They are that, but they're not simply that. They are somehow connected to what Paul refers to as the elemental spirits of the world, which is also rendered in Scripture as the elementary principles of the world. Paul mentions these same things in Colossians 2.8. Um, which we already looked at earlier. Let's read it again. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So you see that this is not a both and. This is an either or scenario right from that verse. This empty deceit is not just human tradition. Its roots are buried in the heart of what Paul's saying are elemental spirits, whatever they might be. The Greek here literally means first principles, first things. And most theologians will tell you we cannot be 100% sure what he's talking about here. But one thing is very clear, however. Somehow, 
elemental spirits and elementary principles are connected to the rulers and authorities that we've already talked about, that we've seen throughout the cross, across this letter. The supernatural beings that in Colossians 1.16, Paul says, Christ created them for his glory, for him. And in Colossians 2.10, he is presently head over all rule and authority. And so there's a clear connection between there. And we can see this because Paul says, we died to the elemental spirits of the world. We died to these things, whatever they are, we died to them. And that, that statement echoes what Paul has already said in Colossians 2, 13 through 15 about the rulers and authorities. He said those supernatural beings, rulers and authorities, lost their power over someone when that person puts their faith in Christ Jesus. That person is forgiven of their sins and the rulers and authorities are put to open shame. God triumphs over them. And so Paul is saying in verse 20 that those who are in Christ died with Christ and they died to the elemental spirits of the world. This death in Christ has the same effect on the rulers and authorities as it does on the elemental spirits of the world. When Christ died, he paid for their sins and they died to this power, this system, whatever it might be. Listen to how Paul describes this same, generally speaking, thing in Galatians 4. He says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? That's that word whose slaves you want to be once more. And then he pleads with them. You observe days and months and seasons and years, he's telling them. Same situation we see in Colossae, approximately. And so the Galatian church is being told that fullness in Christianity requires you submitting to Jewish customs, specifically here circumcision and these days and months and seasons and years. He says these elementary, this is what Paul says, these elementary principles, these elemental spirits enslave people who do not know God, who are trying to achieve righteousness through these other means. Or as Paul really profoundly puts it here, actually, the main issue here is that God doesn't know them in a saving way. He does not have a saving relationship with them. And Paul is pleading with the Galatians, as he is with the Colossians, don't submit to these things. Do not submit to these things. They are weak and worthless principles. You are, he's telling these Christians, no longer a slave. You are no longer a slave to these. You were when you did not know God. Now you know him and he knows you and you are not a slave. So stop going back to these regulations. You are not a slave. Don't return to slavery. And last week we heard from Rescue Freedom International, which I didn't coordinate this, but it's really awesome that we heard that message and that we're diving into the slavery that's in this passage. Um, Rescue Freedoms, like you know, who, if you were here, their whole purpose is to bring real physical freedom in the lives of women and children throughout the world who are physically enslaved and being abused. That's their whole mission. And as Edward Sumner said last week, that effort is fueled by the gospel. It's fueled by the gospel of Jesus Christ because in the gospel, we were freed from spiritual bondage, what we're talking about here. In the gospel, we were, we were freed from the same slavery that the Colossians and the Galatians are looking at and saying, maybe this is a good option. Maybe this is 
a choice that we can make to, to end sin in our lives. And Paul's plea with these believers is, don't do it. Don't return to slavery. God has rescued us. He has redeemed us. And he actually says as much in Galatians 4, 2 through 5. Listen to this. Paul says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's an amazing passage. We could spend weeks just going through that. And although this passage is referring to specifically Jewish readers, it has a broader meaning as it unpacks in the verses afterwards. All of humanity exists, if they're not united with Christ, to slavery. They are enslaved. That's their existence. All humanity outside of Christ is enslaved. Whether you're pursuing Jewish customs as a mean to purify yourself before God or whether you're, you're pursuing some other self-made um, effort to gain moral superiority, all of those things of pursuing righteousness outside of Christ Jesus are slavery. They are captivity and they can never purify you. And we know this a little bit experientially. Um, high school. Do you remember doing ever doing anything? Some of you are going to be like, nah, I didn't do that. Do you ever remember doing anything that was specifically just to fit in? Just doing something because you wanted to fit in. You didn't want to be different than other people. You wanted to fit into maybe a certain crowd, maybe a certain group of people. And so you changed the way you dressed. You changed the way you acted. You said some words differently. You did slight things, maybe more drastic things. And it may not have been an issue with what you're doing. There may have been all morally neutral things, like changing the shirt that you're wearing isn't a problem. But there is an issue, you would agree, with why you did it. What was the motivation in the heart? You were relying on others to give you value and approval and commendation. We were, when we did that, slaves to the opinion of other people. And this is not very different. Paul is telling the Galatian and Colossian Christians, that's not how Christians live. You are not a slave to commending yourself and trying to earn your own righteousness. You are a son in Christ Jesus. You are a daughter. And how did that happen? Well, it's remarkable. Obviously, Christ in the gospel rescued us from that slavery. But what's even more amazing to me is how God did this, how he did this. Because the slavery that's experienced at the hands of these elemental spirits isn't just overthrown. It's not just put to the side. It's not just ignored or replaced with the gospel. This slavery is the very means, the instrument that God uses to bring about our rescue. So think about what Paul is saying here. He says, when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, who was born of a woman, he's a human, born under the law. He was born with the same obligations that everyone had. And where we fail to meet those obligations, 
And we're never able to earn our way towards God, to earn righteousness before God. Jesus Christ never failed. Not once, not a millisecond of sin in him. And it's a staggering thought that God, when he surveyed human history, said, this is how I'm going to redeem people. I'm going to use the very slavery my enemies want to invoke on my people as the very means by which I free them. It's going to be the instrument that I use to, slay, to save them. And Galatians 3.22, Paul says God imprisoned everything under sin. He condemned everything that had been poisoned to sin. And then Christ enters into that poison, lays hold of all of his people, and does everything we couldn't do perfectly. Such that when he died for us, we were so united with him on that cross that we died to the elemental spirits of the world and our slavery ended. That is an unbelievably massive reversal. The amazing thing here is that in the moment that we trust in Christ Jesus, our slavery immediately turns to sonship. We become sons and daughters of the living God. That is unbelievable. We no longer fight for approval. We no longer fight for commendations through regulations or systems. The life in the knowledge of God for a Christian is not fighting for approval. It's fighting from a position of approved. It's fighting from a position of, that's my son, that's my daughter. They are adopted members of my family. Christians don't fight for victory. We don't fight for victory. We fight from a position of having already won. We fight from the cross, which is God's victory over all of our sins. So if you've trusted in Christ, if you've put your faith in Christ, that means that you are no longer a slave. You've become a son or daughter of the living God. God has adopted you, and he did that with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's what it cost him to remove those chains. Infinitely worthy blood. Was, cost, was the cost for removing those chains from our hands and feet. But here's the thing. This is really the rub. You might agree with everything I said today and with what Paul's been saying, and you might say that's all well and good. But the question of today and the question the Colossian church was asking is, how can I stop sinning? I still say things that hurt other people. I still am drawn to things that I shouldn't love. I still do things that dishonor God every day. How can I stop that? Because if I'm honest, some days I don't feel like a son. Some days I don't feel like a daughter. I still feel like I'm enslaved. I make the same mistakes. I get caught up in trying to earn my way towards God. I get trapped in moral failure after moral failure, after slip up, after sin. And I can't make any progress in my life. And so with the Colossians and the Galatians, you might be asking, how can I stop sinning? That's the question. And here's the answer. If you are a son or daughter of God, you start your fight against sin in one place. This is the beginning of our fight. We're going to have several weeks where we go over this. You start in one place. You start with the champion who rescued you. You start with Jesus Christ alone. And you do what Paul said in verse 20. You hold fast to Christ like your life depended on it, 
Like you needed him. More, you need him more than anything else. And when that happens, when, that, when you are holding fast to Christ, when you are seeking him and pursuing him and, and doing everything you can to get your affection stirred up for him, God will grow you as a Christian. God will create the growth through Christ Jesus. <laughs> and so our growth comes from God alone through Christ alone. And Paul says, the head nourishes every member of the body. This doesn't mean you don't do things. This doesn't mean you don't stay away from other stuff. We're going to get to that in the coming weeks. But the first thing we need to really get clear in our hearts is that you cleave your, yourself to Christ Jesus. God has promised, if you cling to Christ, God has promised, I will grow you as a Christian. I will purify you. I will remove the things that are harmful to you from your body, from your soul. And I will nurture growth so that you love me and pursue me more. So Paul's saying, seek Christ. God's going to keep his promise. This is our only hope in the battle. We don't win this war against our own sin by fighting on the surface. We will never win this war. It's not a checklist scenario because the sin is so deep inside of us. The only way, the only way we can do this in the Christian life um, is if we cling to Christ Jesus. We refuse to live out of a desire to get the approval of others, commendation from others, or earning our own moral capacity to do this. We cannot survive as Christians if we pursue it that way. On the cross, God purchased our sanctification with his own blood. He bought that. And I don't just mean the imputed righteousness of Christ, which is enormous, being given the righteousness of Jesus. I also mean Jesus Christ on that tree bought every step of our conformity into his image. Every day we become more like Jesus Christ. That was purchased with his blood. He bought it all, which means that God guarantees that it will be completed. He guarantees that it will be completed. 1 Thessalonians 5 has this powerful benediction. Listen to this. It's actually not a benediction, but says, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will what? Surely do it. He's not going to give up on you. He refuses to give up on you. As children of God, our first inclination in the war against sin is to cling to Christ Jesus. The only way we can even begin to declare war on anything that is broken in us still, the only way we can even express any kind of sincere, authentic Christian morality is through a ferociously desperate cleaving of ourselves to Christ Jesus, clinging to him alone. That's the only way. And my prayer for me and my prayer for all of us really is that God would do this very thing in our midst, that he would cause us to be able to do this. So let's pray real quick, and we'll sing some more songs. Father God, you are the greatest reality in the universe, and when we come together in fellowship, Father, we are coming together to contemplate your worth, to contemplate what you did on the cross through Jesus Christ, and to make it our heart's desire to pursue you with every breath in our bodies. We were made for the one who made us. We were made for our creator. 
And our highest joy is found in his presence. So Father, I pray that as we leave this place, what you would do in our hearts is that you'd cause us to desire and pursue and seek out Christ Jesus in scripture, in prayer, even in communion as we, as we for those who trust in Christ, take the elements and embrace and remember and consider all that Christ did for us on that tree. That you would use that as an instrument to draw us deeper into the reality of the gospel. That our hearts would be conformed ever closer into the image of Christ, Father. And that in the coming weeks, as we learn how to strategically make this battle against sin, that you would do a great battle in our own hearts. Remove every, every impediment in us that would desire not to see and embrace Christ Jesus as infinitely satisfying, infinitely superior than anything this world could offer. We give you all the glory in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.